Hi, I'm Sarah Chia from Bond Supermart, an online platform that provides you with information on bonds, transparent prices, tools, and research at your fingertips. Welcome to another episode of our podcast series where we share with you about newborn issues and hold discussions on the fixed income market. Today I have with me Colin Lowe, Senior Macro Analyst from iFast Singapore. We're going to talk about opportunities that investors can consider in this terribly low-yield environment. Hi Sarah, just to give everyone an introduction, I cover mostly equities and fixed income. So for the equity side, I cover different uh, markets, key markets such as uh, emerging markets, uh, China, US, as well as uh, Europe. And for fixed income segment, we cover a variety of segments split into the IG as well as the high yield category. But today I'll be talking mostly on the high yield category. All right, great. So to get us started, I mean, the truth is that fixed income markets are honestly rather uninteresting right now, right? Um, the yields for your IG, your investment grade bonds have been really low. And so for investors to get anything more interesting than that, they are probably going to have to stretch for yields. So we know from a previous episode that interest rates are expected to stay low for a long time. So now we are going to explore the opportunities out there for investors who want to stretch for yield. So Colin, could you tell us why you've chosen to look at Asia emerging markets and US high yields? Yeah, so before I dive into all these segments, I would like to say this uh, backdrop uh, right now is very important for investors. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, we are likely to see a backdrop of lower for longer interest rate. And I think this view is more of a reality to stay given the results of the presidential election, which we saw a Biden presidency coupled with a split Congress. So what this means is that the large fiscal stimulus previously promised to us by the blue wave is very unlikely to happen. From the fiscal stimulus perspective, we are likely to see lesser stimulus. And what this means is that the Fed has to do more of a heavy lifting. And by that, I mean they have to lower interest rate or keep interest rate low for a longer period of time. Mm as well as to increase their rate of per- asset purchase. So uh, this diminishes the likelihood of uh, faster than an expected rate hikes and ultimately reinforcing the need to hunt for yields. If I look at um, emerging markets and Asia, right, would we be right to say that Asia and emerging market high yields have quite a bit of an overlap? Yeah, so yes, Sarah, I think you are right. So by far, I think the biggest overlap is from the geographical uh, segment. So if you were to look at the geographical segment, uh, China is, of course, a large part of uh, Asia high yield because it comprises around 45 to 55% of the index. Uh, but again, depending on which index you're looking at, but generally, I would say 45 to 55% of the Asia high yield index. Uh, however, for this uh, EM high yield segment, China comprises around 4 to 5%. So this is actually quite minor compared to its representation in Asia high yield. So a large reason for that is because in the EM high yield, other markets such as Brazil, your Mexico, Turkey have a higher representation. And by higher, I mean that all these three markets comprise an, an outstanding representation of around 40%. So as far as any other overlap-wise, I would say it's actually quite minor. So if you look at the underlying bonds, I would also argue that many of them are actually different. So many of the China bonds are actually different from its, uh, if you com- were to compare China within EM high yield and China within Asia high yield. So of course, there are some key differences between uh, EM high yield and Asia high yield. So I think a large difference is in terms of uh, credit quality because EM high yield has more concentration on the WB rated bonds at around 48%. While Asia high yield itself has more concentration on single B rated bonds at around 43%. 
And uh, another key difference, I believe, is the debt maturity profile, which differs quite vastly for both uh, segments. This uh, EM Hayu has more debt that matures uh, later, whereas Asia Hayu has more debt that matures earlier. So pretty much, uh, you were to break it down even further. So EM Hayu has a uh, debt that matures mostly in the three to five year uh, time period, uh, followed by the five to ten year time period. Whereas in Asia, you see that most of this debt matures around in a shorter time period at around one or two years time. So this leads me to another key difference, which is that uh, Asia Hayu has a lower duration of about two point eight years. So compared to EM Hayu, which is a lot more higher at around 5.8 years. So while these are some uh, of the notable differences between these two sub-segments, I would like to still say that EM Hayu as well as Asia Hayu, both of them are affected by the same macro uh, headwinds or even tailwinds. While these are some notable differences, I would still like to say that there are some factors that affect both uh, sub-segments equally. So for example, key macro drivers such as the outlook for global demand, which can hit uh, both sub-segments equally. Right, that makes sense. Thank you for the really good explanation on how they both overlap. So um, let's go back to your Asia EM US high yields. How would you choose to rank them and why would you rank them in that way? Okay, so firstly, I think before I dive in again, I would like to just talk about my methodology and the kind of framework that I'm looking at uh, right now. So if we were to look at this current backdrop of uh, COVID-19 the pandemic, I believe it is unprecedented in nature and and by no means am I able to tell when will it end. <laughs> so the consideration of risk itself in this case when choosing the fixed income sub-segment is very, very important. So to incorporate that in the framework is to look at things more objectively on a risk-reward perspective. So by that, I mean the analysis on spread levels, implied default rate, as well as recovery rates can help investors truly determine the value for each uh, high-yield sub-segments. So using the framework that I talked about, the risk-reward framework, I will rank Asia high-yield first, followed by EM high-yield as a close second, then US high-yield further down the line. So why Asia high-yield first? I, I, I do believe that Asia high-yield offers the best risk-reward profile, given that it's offering a current spread level of around 730 basis points, uh, which is actually implying a default rate of around 7%, with a historical recovery rate of 42%. All these are actually numbers, right? But if you to compare tactically, you'll find that the implied default rate itself is much higher than our expected default rates of 6.5% as of end 2020. So this comparison actually tells us that Asia Hayu is actually compensating investors well for taking on such level of risk. And not to mention the attractive uh, potential capital gains if spreads were to compress for Asia Hayu, which at the current moment, if you were to look at uh, the current spread levels of uh, 730 basis point, it is still above its historical mean of around 550 basis point. And bear in mind that uh, if you were to look back even further during the great financial crisis, you will find that Asia high yields uh, default rate went up to a high of 9%. This time around, if you were to look around us, Asia's recovery momentum has already started picking up steam in uh, September, I would say, and especially supported by China. And also alongside that, you look at uh, some of the other uh, lagging Asia countries such as India, your Indonesia, they are really showing positive recovery momentum, especially for the month of September. So all in all, the macro backdrop for Asia 
moving ahead is looking more positive. So with that said, this has kind of underpinned my belief that default rates will come in below GFC level uh, moving ahead. I would like to say that our projection of 6.5% default rate can consider to be quite a conservative so moving on for uh, EM high yield, I believe that it also offers a good uh, risk reward payoff. So it's the payoff itself, I would say, I'll put it in a lower than Asia high yield, but it will come in as a close second, like I said. Because uh, right now, this uh, EM high yield is offering a spread level of around 600 basis point, which is actually implying a default rate of 6.7% with a historical recovery rate of around 40%. So this uh, implied default rate itself is also higher or even at worst, I would say, around our de- projected default rate of about 4 to 7% as of end 2020. So to add on to that, I would like to say that I'm actually growing increasingly positive on EM's high use uh, default outlook. So for emerging uh, high yield, to wrap it up, I would like to say that I see good risk rock profile as the current spread levels do compensate well for taking such level of default risk. However, the case is quite different for US high yield, whereby I believe that the spread levels are not compensating enough for the default risk. If you were to look at the several different numbers that US high yield is currently offering, we will find that it's offering a spread of around 410 basis point, which is not a lot actually if you compare to some of the other segments that I mentioned earlier. But this implies a default rate of around 2% with a historical recovery rate of 40%. Remember this number of 2%, which is important because if you compare that against forecasted default rate for US high yield, which is expected to shoot up to around 11 and 12% by end February, there is a stark difference between that. Put it into perspective, I generally do believe that uh, US high yield's current spread level is not compensating investors enough because spreads for US high yield has actually compressed too fast and too hard. And especially on the prospect of a bigger stimulus package under a Biden presidency and so under the hopes of rising inflation if the stimulus package were to be passed soon. So with this uh, implied default of 2%, this means that for investors, everything have to go well for them to be compensated quite fairly uh, which is quite unlikely considering the near-term virus headwind yeah thank you for that i thought that was a really good summary um as to why you know you're, you're picking these three um as your top three so um it might be a bit surprising for others and honestly a bit for me as well to hear that you're actually including em high yields as one of these top three given that there was so much concern about em debt in march and april that was actually the peak of uncertainty about covid right back then so um i remember seeing a ton of news articles and you know news sites who were actually very concerned about these growing default rates within the em space um so how do you think that has actually worked out since all right good point that you mentioned there so i believe that since then especially for em high yield sovereign debt the risk of credit downgrades and defaults have actually mellowed and some investors may fear default but I generally believe that this fear has been overblown. Again, if you look at fundamental, we find that fundamentals for EM are actually improving and the credit default swap spread which is the market-driven indicator for sovereign default risk for the largest EM sovereigns has actually declined rather steadily since a couple months ago. So most of these uh, large sovereign issuers are actually retaining their rating of stable under the category of, uh, for example, issuer default ratings as given by the prominent rating agencies. So if you don't mind me just jumping in there, um, would you say that these credit default swaps are a common indicator um, that you would use for analyzing defaults? 
Yes, I would say that it is common indicator that I would use because the the CDS for the country gives us the probability of default for the country. So we, what we've seen lately is that CDS numbers are actually falling for this country, indicating that the probability of defaults for these uh, large sovereigns have actually kind of mellowed down. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Okay, yes, please continue about the EMs. Oh uh, yeah, sure. So on top of my view that uh, EMs growth outlook is turning positive, especially under this uh, Biden presidency, with all these uh, different factors considered, I think it is unlikely that default rates will actually deteriorate significantly, unless, unless truly, unless we are looking at another serious wave of shutdown. And as for corporate bonds, which is the other section to consider under the EM high yield, we find that many investors actually do think that EM high yields are inherently riskier, which I would say that it is untrue, because if you look at historical default rates of EM high yield, they're actually around 1-2% to lower than their US counterparts. And I believe that a key reason for this is that EM corporates are typically less uh, leveraged than their US peers. Because of this, them being less leveraged and their conservative approach, right? So your credit uh, metrics for EM corporates are often better than similarly rated issues in the US. Maybe to supplement some of these views, right? So over the past quarter or so, uh, if you look at the refinancing ability for for EM corporates, I believe that they have actually improved and many of them were actually able to enhance their liquidity position, draw on credit lines and also receive uh, supports by government stimulus packages. So the strengthening of uh, EM currency also helped helped, uh, tremendously by decreasing the external debt burden for corporates. Okay, yeah, I thought it was really surprising actually that um, these EMs are less leveraged than their US peers because that I mean, I think that's typically not the kind of image that we get from the media. But I wanted to touch on the US high yields. Again, it was surprising to see that or to hear the current implied default rates are at 2%, but that we are seeing a projection of this increasing all the way to 11% um, by NFAP next year. So could you tell us why? How have we gotten into a situation where we are actually seeing such high projected default rates for the US? Okay, so if you look at uh, the US economy as a whole, um, even though you find that the economy has broadly recovered, the corporate fundamentals, especially for sectors within the US high yield, haven't actually picked up uh, or recovered significantly yet. So I would like to highlight just two key sectors that have been battered down really badly. So number one is the energy sector, mm-hmm. and for obvious reasons, and number two is the retail sector. So both are actually have been seeing that their fundamentals being hit really badly even before COVID-19. So for example, the US sector is being hit so hard by falling oil prices even before COVID-19 where we've seen a move down from $89 per barrel to $60 per barrel around there before COVID-19. And for the retail sector, we see that throughout the the recent few years, the move to e-commerce have actually been squeezing the bottom line for the many different uh, retail companies. So essentially, the fundamentals for these uh, sectors have been hit uh, hard by COVID-19, but in fact has been falling or moderating lower since a couple of years ago. So given that we will likely see a Biden presidency with a split Congress, I do believe that the chances of a large uh, fiscal stimulus will be actually quite low. And with if you take into account this moderate fiscal stimulus and the fact that there might be policy lag, which typically occurs around uh, the time of two to three months, we'll find that default rates for this sector that I've just mentioned could materially rise in the months ahead before descending. 
So to make matters worse, these are also the sectors which comprise a heavier weightage within the US high yield, the index or US high yield makeup. So by my estimation, if you look at consumer cyclicals and non-cyclicals, I would say that they roughly make up around 36% of the entire index, while energy sector alone comprise another 12%. So if you look, combine both, they're actually close to a whooping 50% of the entire index. So with overweighted uh, exposure to these different sectors, this uh, the US high yield segment as a whole could still see material pickup in default rates if things were to worsen, especially from the COVID front. Okay, Colin, before we end off, um, I want to get a sense of how you would allocate these three sectors within your portfolio, right? If you were to build a fixed income portfolio for yourself, what allocation would you assign to these three regions? So I think uh, this is a hard question to answer on the spot. But if I were to do it uh, right now and uh, giving it a hypothetical portfolio, I would say I would like to begin with an equal weightage uh, of around 33% for each uh, three segments and taking that as a neutral uh, allocation. So with that said, I would like to overweight Asia Hayu and EM Hayu and underweight uh, US Hayu. For the exact weighting, I would say I will assign a 45% weighting to Asia Hayu and a 40% weighting to EM Hayu and uh, the remaining 15% to US Hayu. Your weighted allocations for Asia Hayu and EM Hayu are rather close, huh? Yeah, I think they are close for a reason. So the key reason is because if you look at uh, things again from the risk-reward uh, profile, which I've uh, talked about uh, earlier on, we'll find that in terms of that, Asia high yield stands out slightly because I believe that uh, the risk-reward payoff for Asian high yield is still a little bit higher than EM high yield at the current moment. So uh, if you look at this uh, portfolio, which I put up uh, just on the spot, uh, I would say there's a lot of pros and cons. Uh. Mm. Uh, if I were to think about Truly think about the pros, I would say maybe one of the key pros is that we will see a decent weighted spread. So just by using a simple estimation, uh, I believe that this allocation should give around a weighted spread of above a 600 basis point. And if we were to factor in the yield, it should be about 680 basis point. With that said, I believe that these kind of numbers are actually attractive in the current lower for longer interest rate backdrop. And particularly so if you were to compare against the, I would say, uh, pathetic yield being offered by the US high yield, which is around 400 or so basis point. So this is definitely a, a pro in, in that regards. And I think another uh, minor pro is that the overweight and underweight active decision for this uh, portfolio ensures that the default risks um, taken by investors are actually accounted and adjusted for. La. I think the last uh, pros will be that uh, this allocation will be very dependent on the global economic recovery, especially in emerging markets. To simply put, this portfolio itself will benefit greatly if the recovery picks up steam, the global recovery, so to speak. Yeah, If it picks up steam and we exit the trough and transit to a stronger uh, economic expansion next year. So with a better EM uh, growth outlook as well as Asia growth outlook in general, I would say it, it could improve uh, credit fundamentals for the different issuers, especially for, more importantly, for the Hayu uh, issuers. And this is something that investors, I, I believe, would appreciate and would definitely bring uh, default rates, uh, the likelihood of uh, defaults are lower moving ahead. However, the, the, I, would, I, would, I would think that the converse is also true. A slowdown or a stall in the global economic recovery will mean bad news to this portfolio. 
So we mean definitely mean bad news to this four player even more than than I would say the neutral allocation of thirty three percent for each segment okay. because of its a uh, strong exposure to emerging market as well as uh, Asia. So Colin, based off our conversation, can I just say that? If there's anything that investors take away from this, it would have to be that um, should they look, want to look for opportunities in the fixed income market, they must adopt a risk-reward framework and that they can easily do so by looking at important factors like spread levels, which is um, essentially the compensation that they're going to get for taking risks, and comparing that with the default and implied default risk. Yes, I think those are good uh, parameters to look at. Essentially, because that forms the risk and reward uh, framework that we discussed quite in detail at the start of this uh, podcast. But uh, in, in general, I think this framework and this form of thinking is good, especially with the current backdrop, like I said. And I suppose so, as, uh, particularly so with the continued volatility, much likely, it can be difficult for investors to view whether sell-offs in these high-use uh, sub-segments as potential buying opportunities or, or just reason to move away, uh, simply put. And adopting such a framework itself can help to discern attractive uh, buying opportunities from uh, some false opportunities out there. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Colin. Thank you, Sarah. I think it was great to share my views with the listeners, especially on the framework of uh, risk-reward, which I believe is uh, of paramount in this current backdrop. And once again, thank you for inviting me here. This is brought to you by Bond Supermarket. I'm Sarah Chia and our guest analyst with us today is Colin Lowe from IFAS Singapore. Follow Bond Supermart on Twitter, Facebook and Telegram to get first-hand updates on newborn issues, credit updates and special events. For Bond information and articles, visit our website bondsupermart.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.